I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, a little bit of the backstory here. At the beginning of Acts, the apostles are still in Jerusalem, and that's really the center of the church at that point. The church has been growing. And it's been growing rapidly, but it's primarily just in Jerusalem, just in Judea and Jerusalem itself. And so, I pray, uh, I don't know what I just said that for. I review the story with you. Peter and John have been arrested for preaching, and they've been preaching the gospel, are in and around Jerusalem. And they've been performing signs and wonders. They've, they've performed miracles. They've healed people. And the religious leaders are not impressed. And of course, we've been going through John, and we know enough of the story now of how the religious leaders responded. We know the anger that they had. Um, but Peter and John have been arrested for healing a man. Well, after healing a man. And told not to speak or act in Jesus' name anymore. So really, it was for healing him. Right? Because they healed him in the name of Jesus. And the religious leaders say... No, you cannot speak in his name and you cannot act in his name anymore. Peter and John, surprisingly, I I would say, but as evidence of the change that has taken place in them by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not surprising, right? But if you think about Peter and John before, they ran away, right? They were the ones who... They were the ones who were boldest of the apostles, but even they abandoned Jesus. Everybody abandoned Jesus. But now, after he's raised, after the Holy Spirit has come, Peter and John, when they're arrested and told no longer, if, if you speak or act in Jesus' name, you're a goner, they say, fine, but we're going to keep speaking and acting in Jesus' name. All of the apostles are arrested and thrown in jail. But an angel releases them and tells them to go continue preaching in the temple. So, you don't have have a better example of, you know, direct command. Not just keep preaching, but like, Right now, get up, get out of jail, go to the temple, and keep preaching. So this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 5. I'm going to read, starting in verse 26. This is right after they've been discovered to be missing. And the the religious leaders and the guards find out, they're in the temple preaching again. So please stand for the reading of God's word from Acts chapter 5, verses 26 through 33. 
Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I, I love these sermons, these little sermons that we get in the book of Acts, especially from Peter. It's another beautiful sermon. They're amazing. It's so short. It's so compressed, what he says. But it's, it's a full message of hope. It's a full message of call to repentance. It's, a, it's, it's everything we need boiled down into such a, a tiny little nugget. We ought to study these sermons to understand how to faithfully and quickly proclaim the good news to others. It takes Peter three sentences to summarize the contents of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just think about that. Three sentences. He summarizes it. And not only does he summarize it, but in the, within those same sentences, he manages also to apply it directly to the men he's talking to. Now, summarizing is one thing. Applying is another thing entirely, isn't it? You may be able to summarize quite well without ever understanding what the point would be of saying it, right? But Peter understands fully not just what the story is, but why it matters and what it means for the people in front of him, the particular people in front of him. When he gives these little sermons in the book of Acts, he says different things to different people. But the focus is always on Jesus Christ. The focus is always on the necessity of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And he always points those sins of the people in front of him out to them so that the story has meaning, so that they can repent. So first off, who is Peter talking to in this context? Well, verse 26, we read, The captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence. 
And then in verse 27, they stood them before the council. The council includes the high priest. So you've got the high priest, the council, the guards, the captains, the, the, and the, the um, soldiers, those captains and guards and stuff are still probably there. Because just like in the uh, courthouse today, you have a bailiff, is that what they're called? Yeah, the bailiff is an officer, and sometimes they're needed, right? You keep guards around when you've got prisoners, right? Same thing happens here. So, who is he talking to? Well, he's talking to religious leaders, and in particular, we saw, or we know that these religious leaders are men who have no fear of God, and they have no problem persecuting his apostles. But they do fear men. They don't fear God, but they do fear men. And that's always the way it is, that if we stop fearing God, it's replaced by the fear of man. The only way you can stop fearing man is to fear God instead. Those are the, those are the options. Either you fear man or you fear God. These religious leaders do fear men and do not fear God, but they are, as we see in verse 26, very careful not to offend the crowds. Because why? Because they fear the people. When Jesus spoke and taught, he was not careful to avoid offending the crowds. Right? In fact, his Apostles ask him at one point, his disciples go, do you know that the, that the Pharisees were offended also when you said this? He's like, no, duh. That's not actually what he says, but that's what we have to say having read the text. Like, of course they were offended. Jesus knew what it was going to, that it was going to offend people. When he spoke, he was not afraid of man, but he feared his heavenly Father, and so he obeyed. And here the religious leaders that have arrested the apostles are opposing God and fear man. So they're careful not to offend the crowds as they arrest them. And these religious leaders are men who are very angry. They're angry for two reasons. Number one, these ignorant men had dared to cross them. These nobodies had dared to disobey them, constantly preaching in Jesus' name after they had been commanded not to. And number two, they're mad because they're making them look very bad in the eyes of the people. Which is why they say, Those two things, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name. And then they say, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They, as we know from the book of John, had already claimed the blood of Jesus Christ onto themselves. Right? Let's read from Matthew 27. I think we've got that on the slides, if you can pull that up too. 
So this is the account of them taking responsibility for the blood of Jesus. Okay? But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. Who did it? The chief priests and the elders, the same crowd, right? The same group of people that we're just reading about in Acts. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. His blood shall be on us and on our children. This is what they said. And now they're saying to Peter and John, what? You're trying to make his blood be on us. Well, it's absurd, right? Isn't it absurd? So what can we learn from it? Well, let's learn to be like the apostles here. The apostles speak the truth even when others think that we're only doing it to make them look bad. I want to say that a couple more times. The apostles speak the truth even when others think they're only doing it to make them look bad. Now, this is common. This is common. Because it's, number one, it's common for people to say things just to make others look bad. Right? Don't we often do that kind of thing? We speak in, with the tone of voice. We speak the, you know, we wait until they're just out of the room to roll our eyes. There's lots of ways that we speak. My point right now is that we speak with body language and we speak with our words in such a way as to make people look bad. And when we do that, of course, we call it putting them down or all kinds of things. But the goal is always to raise ourselves up, right? It's this comparative game. Like, if I can make them look bad, then by comparison, I'll look better. My faults will be overlooked. And, of course, that's never the way it works, right? When you're in a group of people that are always putting others down, everybody gets put down. (laughs) Even the cool kids have people making fun of them, right? If you, if you were the cool kid and you didn't know that, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but behind your back, they were all talking about you and about how you were so stuck up and snobby and stuff like that. When, when we are in a group that insults and puts down just to make others look bad, okay, everybody gets the treatment. Everybody gets the treatment. Now, so it happens all the time that people do it just to make others look bad, but then... There's 
the truth. And the truth and making others look bad often go together, right? So, so when somebody leaves the room and you roll their eyes at them, typically, and, that, and that's all you need to do, all right? If, it, if all you need to do is roll your eyes and let other people see you to communicate, typically it's because what? It's because it's so blatantly obvious that what they've done or what they've said or the way they're acting is bad in some way, right? And so simply by rolling your eyes, you're calling attention to, the, to a, a, a truth, a simple fact. And what? Everybody can see that fact. But you're doing it You're speaking the truth in some way by rolling your eyes, right? But you're doing it just to make them look bad, okay? So I want you to to fully understand how, how easy it is for us to insult others and, and try to make them look bad. I also want you to understand that much of the time... That involves pointing out true things. She has acne all over her face. Did you see the blah, blah, blah? You know, you're talking about, like, these are legitimate facts. You can list them. They're true most of the time. Otherwise, you wouldn't have any, it it, it wouldn't be actual ammunition, right? And so because of that, it's easy for us to, um, it's easier for us to do one of two things. Either to justify saying true things because, well, I'm just saying the truth. I'm just saying the truth, right? Or on the completely opposite end of the spectrum, to, to justify never speaking the truth because you've learned that speaking the truth is often offensive to people and often done in order to offend people, so now you no longer speak the truth. But of course, neither one of those things is appropriate, and neither one of those are what we see the apostles doing here. Right? What the apostles do is they preach God's word, the truth, in spite of the fact that it will offend people. Not because it will offend them, but in spite of the fact that it will offend them, knowing that it will offend them, but they won't stop. They won't stop. And so the, the, what truth needs to be spoken is really where we have to focus, right? What truth needs to be spoken? Do we need to call attention to to the, uh, to the outward appearance of people that don't fit in? Of course not. That's bullying, right? That's the, the whole goal of that is to make them look bad so that you look better by comparison, right? But does the truth of God's word, does the truth of the gospel message include pointing out bad things about people? Yes, but way worse things than what they look like. 
way more offensive things than their accent or how they talk or how they don't fit in. What we point out is sin. What we call attention to is sin. And this is what the the apostles did with their preaching. They said, whom you put to death on a cross. And they said it to all of Jerusalem, and they said it to the religious leaders who convinced all of Jerusalem to go along with them. And when they said it to all of Jerusalem, the religious leaders thought, you're just trying to bring this man's blood down on us. Like this is some sort of a competition between the apostles getting followers and the religious leaders getting followers. This is not a popularity contest. You understand? And yet it is a contest, isn't it? It's a contest between God's truth and the lies of Satan. And that contest is played out as we speak the truth and as those lies are proclaimed. So it does become a conflict that works its way out into our lives with other people. Do you understand? Conflict is unavoidable when the gospel is involved in the message. This is why the apostles are arrested. This is why they're thrown in jail. This is why they're brought back to jail when, they've re- and when an angel has released them and sent them back to the temple. Because conflict is unavoidable. We must continue speaking that message even when others think we're doing it just to cause offense. You may not do it just to cause offense. You must do it. You do not do it to cause offense. You do it because you love them. And if you don't love them, then either you will do things to cause offense or you'll just never speak. But once you love them, you'll speak things that you know, yeah, this will probably be offensive to them, but because I love them, I need to say it. Don't let people silence you by saying, that's offensive, or that's offensive to me, or that's offensive to them. Or don't you know that that causes offense to people? This is, this is one of the primary ways that the church of God has been silenced and shut down in the conflict. Being, being convinced of the idea that when things cause conflict, that somehow they must self-evidently be problematic or be bad. That's not true. The apostles respond by saying, we must obey God rather than men. And the apostles are talking about obedience because they had just been released from jail by an angel who told them, go preach in the temple. (laughs) It's that blatant, right? It's like, well, you know, half an hour ago when we were still in jail... 
or an hour ago, you know, I might have been considering thinking about retiring from the proclamation of God's word business. But then the angel came and said, get up, get out of jail, and go keep preaching. Okay, so, so we did it. And now here you are, and you're saying, don't do it. And it's like, mm, I don't think so. That angel was pretty scary. Angels are always scary when they appear to people in the Bible. If you go, if you go read, angels are always scary. They always start by saying, don't be afraid. You know? That angel is pretty scary. Why? Well, because it reminds you that there is a God and that he is holy. And that's where the, the angel has come from. And so it's like, okay, I'll go preach in the temple. And that, that comes forward to us, not because we've just been released from jail, but because we have been released from our sins, the jail of our sins. And when we have been released from the jail of our sins and told, now you have hope and you are to be ready to give an account for the hope that is within you, that is an angel saying, you're out of jail, go tell others. Go tell others. And it's, and it's, also, it's also included in the Great Commission when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. You cannot do that without what he says next, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, baptizing them. Those are the things. That's what the church is about. That's us. We are the church. We are to go make disciples of all nations. People are to be taught what it looks like to obey God, and then they're to be baptized as they give their life by faith to Jesus Christ and are washed from their sins. And then they are part of what? Those who've been freed from the prison of their sins and are going out. And so this is the contest. It's not a popularity contest between the disciples and the religious leaders, you understand. But it is a contest for the souls of the people. And it, so it ends up looking like people choosing, right, which side they're on. That's what we want. We want more people on our side. Not because we like people being around us and we like big groups and we like, most of you guys don't like big groups. That's what I hear. It's not because we're in some sort of a popularity contest. It's because we have a Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we cannot help but obey him. And we know that people's souls are at stake. And so we go and we obey. The command that they had been given was that they not speak in Jesus' name. They, they, they arrest them because they keep doing it. They're released. They go to the temple. They keep doing it. They're rearrested. They're brought back. And the religious leaders say, we thought we told you to stop speaking in his name. And what does he do? He then begins to speak in his name. 
immediately he starts doing what they've told him not to do. He doesn't delay. Look at that, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. So he says, must obey God rather than man. And then he starts talking about Jesus again. How does Peter proclaim Jesus? He says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. So what does he say about Jesus in this? He says that Jesus was from God. And what does he say about us? To the people he's talking to. He points out the sin of those he's talking to. Jesus is from God. You're a sinner. He admits that Jesus died a humiliating death on the cross. And he states Jesus' resurrection from the dead as fact. All of that is in verse 30, right? Now, there's a lot that we can learn from it. One of the things is that only when people see their own sin can they understand their need for somebody to save them. So sharing the gospel almost always means we will first be pointing out sin. First, pointing out sin. Second, he's not afraid of making them angry. We've already seen that. Third, he is not unwilling to share the gospel with them because of their sin, despite how personal it was. In other words, these people have done their best to hurt Peter. These people have done their best to harm his Lord and Savior. And yet he's still willing to proclaim the gospel to them. He still holds out hope for them. And what does he do He does not point out their sin against himself. He points out their sin against God. Then he goes on, verse 31. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So Peter does not ignore the deity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is God. He shows Jesus absolute authority at the right hand of God. And he points out what Jesus was exalted for. To be a prince and a savior. We cannot separate Jesus the savior from Jesus the commander. Commander, prince, lord. All of these things mean that we are We are beholden to obey him. We must obey him. Boss doesn't even come close to to the word prince, does it? (laughs) 
commander. Jesus is our Savior, but he is also our Lord. He's both or he's neither. You can't have Jesus as your Savior without knowing the necessity of obedience to him. Because you can't split Jesus up into separate people. Oh, I like this Jesus, this part of Jesus. I'm going to take this piece of the pie only. Now, you don't have Jesus anymore. You have something else when you try to do that. So he came to be a prince and a savior. And what else does it say? He came to give repentance and forgiveness. Now you get into these, you get into reading through this kind of thing, you can just blip right over this stuff, read through the book of Acts, it's a story, it goes fast, but you hit these words, repentance and forgiveness, and and you don't think about them, and you're missing the point. Repentance and forgiveness are not the same thing, you actually have to like think about what those words mean, notice them, notice what they are. Repentance and forgiveness both have to do with sin, don't they? And so, again, this focus on sin. He came to give repentance and forgiveness. They are gifts. We don't do anything to deserve them. And repentance is when we turn away from our sin and to him. And we think that's something that we decide. But without the power of Jesus Christ, you cannot and will not repent. And without that repentance, you cannot receive that gift of forgiveness either. Again, to try to separate repentance and forgiveness is to try to split Jesus into different people. Then he continues on in verse 32, And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So what does he do next? He brings himself, the rest of the apostles, and their lives, and their gifts from God as evidence for what he's saying. See, he's, given, he's been going through this message, it's just a few sentences, and he ends with a testimony to the truthfulness of it. Right? We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And so he not only brings himself forward as a witness, but he brings God forward as a witness by the Holy Spirit. He claims God as a witness for them of the truth of their message. And what is he saying? Well, he's saying to the religious leaders, you do not have God. You do not have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit on our side. And there is, there's, you you can call forth personal testimony all you want you know 
And, and some people have more personal testimony than others, right? And we like to hear the big personal testimonies, like, I was living this kind of life, and it was awful and terrible, and, and so on and so forth, and God saved me from this much, right? And now I'm a different person. That's personal testimony. That is absolutely appropriate. That's what Peter does here. He uses himself, his own life, as, as testimony. And he says, we are witnesses. We saw. I have seen. But he also then calls forth the Holy Spirit. And, and boy, let me tell you. Put them both together. Don't just use your personal testimony. Bring God's word. Bring God's word. In verse 33, but when they heard this, so now the message is over. And how are they going to respond? When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. So what was the outcome of the message? Well, not what we would want, right? Not what we would want. The more faithfully, clearly, and boldly the gospel is preached, typically that means the more extreme the responses are going to be. Not universally, of course, right? Sometimes you speak clearly, boldly, to the extreme, and people are so dead, they're just sleeping. They don't hear a word you're saying. <laughs> you, can't, you can't cut them to the quick. But these people are not asleep. They're paying attention because they're upset that these men are disobeying them. And so it says they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But this is not the only place that we read a sermon of Peter being described, the result being described as the people being cut to the quick. I want to read you the other one from Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter preaches bold sermons. When he calls people to repentance, he goes straight after their sin. He brings it straight to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the necessity of repentance and forgiveness. And when people are cut to the quick, they respond either with intending to kill him or with, what shall we do? And that day when, he, when, when they responded with, what shall we do? It says that 3,000 souls were added to their number. And today, the temptation that we face is to go quietly into the night, sort of sometimes preaching something somewhat bold and hoping that maybe sometimes someone will hear and repent. And that never will anybody be offended and cut to the quick. 
but look at the look at the extremes. I love this. I love this message from Peter. In spite of the fact that it doesn't produce what he wants, it's by going for it that you saw the 3,000 saved. And now he goes for it again. And this time the result is they want to kill him. But last time the result was 3,000 were saved. And do we want to, do we want to avoid them trying to kill us? the expense is going to be, they won't be cut to the quick in either case. And that's just sad. Go for it. Because of your love for them and because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't fear the response. If we do, we won't proclaim boldly. We won't have anyone wanting to kill us, but we also won't have anybody asking, what shall we do? And that's what we want. We want somebody asking, what shall I do? And then you look at their life and you're like, where to start? You know? (laughs) That's a, beautiful, that's a beautiful place to be with somebody. And Peter's there with a whole crowd of people saying, what shall we do? And he says, what? Believe and be baptized. And they're added to our number. Let's pray.